Good morning. Today's Bible reading is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 6 to 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here ends the reading of God's word. In case you didn't know this, the Bible that you've seen or are holding or somebody else next to you is holding has 66 books in it. Written by a host of authors over thousands of years. For real. And I don't know of a single publisher today who recommends that sort of approach for writing anything. Why not? Why not? Because it seems to be a recipe for creating a disjointed, disunified, chaotic whole. Right? And yet, that is not at all what we find, friends, when we read the Bible. We don't find that. It's remarkably unified from beginning to end. And if you're a Christian, as Christians, we're not surprised by that. Why? Because we know that behind the multitude of human authors stands what? The one divine author. God himself, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by a multitude of conflicting human authorities. No, by God, right? Or 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So listen, because God is the ultimate author of scripture, the Bible is not a random collection of man's thoughts about God. What is it? It's an infallible, unified revelation of God's thoughts about himself. And the story that it tells, if you read it from beginning to end, has a theme, a a center line that, that runs through it. The story of the Bible, and it is a story, is all about God's pursuit of relationship with his people. That's what it's about. That's the theme. And so in Genesis 3-9, we hear the cry of relationship lost. Adam, where are you? And in Revelation 21-3, we hear the cry of relationship restored. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And everything that you find between those two 
points, those bookends, as it were, is all about what? What's everything in the middle all about with all its craziness and surprises and twists and turns? It's all about the work God is doing to restore our relationship with himself. That's the point. For your eternal good and his eternal glory. So, how does God get that done? How does he restore our relationship with him? Well, well, he does it through the person and work of Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 9, God's purpose, think about this, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, was to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Why, why would God be interested in that? Why would he want to unite, to not leave disjointed and disconnected and alienated his creatures from himself? Well, friend, it's quite simply so we could gladly declare with the multitude in Revelation 5.12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's why the whole story is about Jesus, because that's the goal of it all. It's a unified story, and that includes the Gospel of John that we just began studying last week. What does John say at the very end? We read this last week. What's the purpose of this book? Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So what's the point of the entire Gospel of John? All that it says, all that we're going to see, everything the Father's going to reveal to us, what's it all about? A right knowledge of Jesus, leading to an abiding faith in Jesus, resulting in an abundant life through Jesus. That's the divinely intended effect of the Gospel of John. And since this prologue, which is a fancy literary high school English teacher loving kind of word, (laughs) for the first 18 verses of chapter 1, functions as, as a table of contents of sorts for the whole book. It's kind of like a sneak preview. You've ever been watching one movie and I actually hate this because half the previews I don't even want to see. But, but you're going to the theater, watch one movie, and you, and you get these sneak previews of a whole bunch of other movies. The prologue's like that. It, it's a sneak preview. It, it introduces themes that John's going to come back to again and again and again and again. But remember, because not just the whole Bible, but the Gospel of John is all about Jesus. What do we find in this table of contents? What, what do we see in this sneak preview? Well, it's basically, if you think of it this way, you business types out there, this is a 18-verse resume for the Son of God incarnate. It's what it is. It's a CV. And it's basically one gloriously mind-shattering answer after another to the all-important question we asked last Sunday, who is Jesus? And so at first, what does John do? He simply refers to him as the word. It's a title drawn from the Old Testament, right? Which points to God's self-expression. What's the word of God? It's his self-expression in salvation, in revelation, and in creation. And John calls Jesus the word. Why? 
because he is God's definitive, climactic revelation of himself in creation and revelation and salvation. And so if you want to know God, you don't investigate alternative forms of spirituality. You look to Jesus. We'll come back to that again and again and again. If you want to know God, you look to Jesus. If you want to know who God is, you look to Jesus. If you want to know who God is, you don't investigate your small, puny, piffling thoughts about him. You listen to him and what he has said in Jesus. And so last Sunday, we looked at the first five verses of this table of contents, this resume for the Son of God, and we learned six things. The word is eternal. The word is one with God. The word is God. The word is the agent of creation. The word is the source of life. And the word is the light of men. Tempted to preach those all over again. That's just the first five verses. And we're going to look at the next middle section this morning, 6 through 13, where we discover at least three more. And to avoid confusion, we're going to go back to number one. So technically, this is the seventh, but I'm going to call it number one, because otherwise I'm going to confuse myself, okay? So what do we discover? Verse six, who is Jesus? We learn that the word, think of it this way, was authenticated by God's appointed witness. Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. His name was John. Wait a minute. Didn't you say last Sunday that John wrote? Is this like one of those weird talking about yourself in an awkward tense kind of thing? No. (laughs) No, it's not. Okay. The author of the fourth gospel, John the Apostle, isn't talking about himself. He's talking about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets because he was the final prophet to speak before Jesus showed up and began his public ministry. Matthew 3 verse 1, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What did he say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist's mission was to prepare people for Jesus' arrival. So he said things like, turn away from your sins. Turn back to God. Why? Because the Lord's Messiah, his his long-awaited deliverer, is about to arrive. The time isn't in the future. It's right now. He's coming to bring the redemptive rule of God to pass on the earth. But notice, it's not so much the details of his message, we'll get to that later in John, that are in view in verses 6 through 8. What is it? It's his identity his function, and his purpose. So let's think about those. What's John's identity? Well, he was a man sent from God. What what does that tell us? That God doesn't abandon us, friends, in the darkness of trouble within and, and trouble without. God doesn't sit idly by watching and observing as sin ravages the perfect world he's created. He acts. He sends. 
right? He intervenes. He, he takes, think of it this way. He takes initiative in creation. That's what the first five verses were about. And he takes initiative in redemption. On every front, who's taking the first step? God is. He always is. And the fact that God himself sent John says as much about God and arguably more so than it does about John. So what was John's function? Look at verse 7. If he was the man sent from God, what's his function as this man sent from God? He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Now, what are those terms? Well, we already know from verses 5 to 6 that the light in John is the word, which John will identify later on in verse 17 in an explicit way as Jesus. So when John says in verse 7 that John the Baptist came to bear witness about the light, he means that John the Baptist came to bear witness to Jesus. He came to herald, to, to authenticate, to confirm validate that Jesus was who he says he was. Why in the world is that important? I mean, you could think Jesus needs a witness. like awkward. Really? (laughs) Why? Well, it's important because according to Jewish law, Old Testament law, a matter could only be confirmed as true by the testimony of what? At least two witnesses. Which is why Jesus says in John 5, 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Listen to this. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, But I say these things so that you may be saved. What's Jesus saying? What's he saying? I'm not ultimately accountable to the court of public opinion. I don't need the testimony of a man like John to know who I am. You shouldn't need the testimony of a man like John to know who I am. But I know your weakness. I know your frailty. I I know your tendency to privilege what man says is true over what God says is true. And so in compassion, in mercy, I sent John to bear witness about me for your sake so that you could know who I am and believe me accordingly. That's what John was about. That was his function. So, so what's the purpose of his ministry? What's the ultimate goal? Look back at verse 7. He bore witness. He testified to the truth about Jesus. That purpose all might believe through him. Translation. His purpose was strengthening our faith in Jesus. Why? Why in the world is that important? Because, friend, mere knowledge about Jesus is entirely insufficient. Woefully insufficient. Completely unhelpful if that's all you have. 
Knowledge about Jesus doesn't change anyone. It's faith in Jesus that's necessary. Personal trust in Jesus. Wholehearted reliance on Jesus. And eyewitness testimony about Jesus is a gift from God designed to strengthen our faith in Jesus. You know, sometimes Christians talk, think about this. Sometimes Christians talk as if genuine faith is utterly blind. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you've heard this. It, it, sometimes it sounds like this. I, I know Jesus doesn't make any sense. I know it's not rational. But you just have to believe anyway. And we sing and we sing and we sing. Are there parts of the Christian faith that defy understanding? Yes. Yes. Are there things Jesus doesn't say that shatter the borders of our finite minds? Yeah. Is that a good thing, friend? Yes. Why? Because if he never did, he would be no greater than you are. You ever think about that? If you in your mind, in my mind, if we could wrap ourselves entirely on, oh yeah, all that Jesus is, got it. Just like I got my math homework last night. (laughs) What would that say about Jesus? Would you want to serve a God like that? Would you be able to believe anything he says? knowing how frail and small we are. No, no. There are things about the faith that defy human understanding and that is good. But does that mean Christianity is irrational? No, not at all. Please hear me when I say this. Biblical faith is not a leap into the unknown or a kind of head-in-the-sand self-talk where you convince yourself something is true even though you know, if you were actually being rational and reasonable, that you don't have a single good reason to believe it's true. That, that's not faith. Acts 26, 25. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. <laughs> but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. What's Paul saying there as he defends his faith in Christ? He's saying Christianity isn't built on a spiritual vision that some random guy says he had in some random place. Could be true, could be false. Who knows? What's Christianity built on? Real historical events confirmed by a multitude of eyewitnesses. Including John the Baptist. And having witnessed Jesus' life, death, resurrection, what do they say? What do do divine messengers like John the Baptist, along with all the other authors of the New Testament, confirm? without exception, that Jesus is who he says he is. He's the light of the world, God the Son incarnate. And so I want to warn some of you. 
please hear this. There is more than a little chronological snobbery in play when we assign greater authority to who we think Jesus is as those living 2,000 years after he walked the earth. Then we do to the eyewitnesses who observed his life and ministry firsthand. Witness is a key theme in the Gospel of John. Remember, the prologue's like the table of contents. And over and over and over and over again, John's going to point to unmistakable signs of Jesus' reliability and utter truthfulness to validate the claims he makes about himself. That's on purpose. And that's good because God isn't just interested, friend, that you believe in Jesus for whatever reason you feel like doing so. Checkbox, yes or no. He wants to strengthen your faith in Jesus. He wants you to know, why do I trust Jesus? Why am I leaning on him? Why am I looking to him? Why do I believe him when he makes claims about himself? And, and so as we jump into this gospel, to, to those of you who, if you're honest, and maybe nobody else in this room around you knows this, but, but you are struggling with doubt about Jesus. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if you are, I want to say several things very directly to you right now, okay? And it's going to come in the form of three words. First, honesty. I want you to be honest about that. Why? Because God can't help or meet you if you are trying to hide or suppress your doubts about him. That's not humble. That's arrogant. Be honest, okay? Be honest. Second, I want you to be specific. There is a certain species of pride that would, would say, yeah, you know, I just, I just have some doubts. What's going on with you and the Lord? Yeah, well, you know, doubts. Doubts. What doubts? Be specific. Why? Because the word of God, including the gospel of John, is brimming over with specific answers to specific doubts. Don't hide behind, I have doubts. That's arrogant. Be humble, there's the theme, and be specific in voicing those doubts to the Lord and into the people around you who know Jesus so that they can help you and God can help you wrestle with specific doubts with specific words. And lastly, I've already said this several times, if you're wrestling with doubt and that surfaces in your hearts as we hit these witness words, please be humble. Be humble. Why do I say that? Because of what I alluded to earlier. There is a form of doubt that would say, I will not believe anything Jesus says about himself unless I can fully grasp every part of it with my mind. Is that humble? No. That's proud. God will not allow you, friend, to hold him ultimately accountable to the throne of human reason. Don't try it. 
there's no deliverance in that. that. That is a dead end as far as resolving doubt is concerned. John the Baptist was a witness, but in many ways this entire gospel is a witness. So as we read it, as you listen to sermons about it, please don't come here looking merely to learn something new. Force yourself to slow down every week and ask this question. What good and satisfying reason does this verse or this chapter give me to trust Jesus? I want you to ask that over and over and over again. What good and satisfying reason does this verse or this chapter give me to trust Jesus? It's good and necessary for us to rest and delight in the utter credibility of our faith. We have good reason to believe Jesus. The word was authenticated by God's appointed witness. Second, look at verse 9. The word was rejected by those who should have received him. So in verse 9, John doubles down on this description of the word that he referred to earlier. The light of men. He's the light of men that shines in the darkness of our sin and suffering. What does he say in verse 9? The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. I want you to think about that. You know, plenty of people agree we need enlightenment. Do you ever think about that? All kinds of people believe we need enlightenment, Christian and non-Christian alike. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize that all is not well within us or around us and to desire some sort of new helpful understanding or perspective accordingly. So what do people say? Well, some people say education is the answer. If we can just get everyone to understand themselves and the world around them, then everything will be okay. Some people say self-esteem is the answer. If we can just all feel good about ourselves and, and get rid of all this negativity, everything will be okay. Some say sexual freedom is the answer. If everyone can just love whoever they want, however they want, whenever they want, then everything will be okay. But friend, when John, the apostle, speaks in verse 9 of Jesus as the true light which enlightens everyone, he's not referring to a subjective experience of discovering the secret to the life you've always wanted. Sex works for some people. Jesus works for others. No, no. He's describing the objective fact the immovable reality that Jesus is and remains the spiritual light we all need regardless of whatever we perceive or think or believe about him in any given moment. He remains that. Because apart from him, there's no enduring joy or peace. You won't find it. There's, there's no deliverance from sin and death. There's no possibility of relationship with the God who created us and to whom we are accountable. You cling to Jesus and you will live. You dismiss or reject Jesus and you will die. As J.C. Ryle says, Christ is to the souls of men what the Son is to the world. He's the center 
and the source of all spiritual light, warmth, life, health, growth, beauty, and fertility. And like the sun, objectively, he shines for the common benefit of all mankind, for high and for low, for rich, for poor, for Jew and for Greek. Like the sun, he is free to all. All may look at him and drink health out of his light. And it would make sense for all to do that, wouldn't it? Why? Look at verse 10. After all, the world was made through him. We're we're part of his creation, which means he knows what we really need far better than any of us do. And yet, what happened when Jesus' public ministry began? Look back at verse 10. The world did not know him. We were part of his domain. We're accountable to him because he created us. Yet, verse 11, when he came to his own, even his own people did not receive him. Why? Why not? Why is this theme of of Jesus being misunderstood and rejected, even by the Jews, coming up over and over and over and over again till it reaches a head at the end of chapter 12? It's because, friend, the sin and rebellion in our hearts, my heart, your heart, you know what it does? It affects our spiritual perception of reality. It affects that. Theologians call it the noetic effect of sin, but basically that means you can't see truly because of the sin in your heart. We like to think we're objective, right? I do. We, we, we flatter ourselves that, that we're discerning. Teenagers are especially good at this. superior knowledge from all who've gone before me. We think that we have the moral faculties to distinguish what is true from, from what is false, what is good from what is evil. And then sometimes we even convince ourselves that we really do want to know the truth about Jesus. We just haven't found him to be persuasive yet. I'm not mocking those thoughts or those statements but I am saying that therein lies the great deception. Because our hearts, your heart, is never, ever neutral. You're not neutral in this, who is Jesus? Question and answer thing. The world, Jews included, didn't recognize Jesus as God because they didn't want Jesus to be God. Think about that. Why not? Because in our sinful nature, we prefer to think of ourselves and other people and things as God. So surprise, surprise, when the Son of God himself shows up, don't know him. Don't want to receive him. Not sufficiently persuasive. Why? Because he lacks credibility? Because he lacks witnesses? No, because we don't want him to be who he says he is. Romans 1 verse 21, For although they knew God, 
He exists. He's real. Jesus is who he says he is. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I'll take the creature, not the creator. And Edward Klink says this really well. It was not that the world failed to perceive his existence, but that the world failed to relate with humble obedience and trust. That's the issue, right? I mean, the, the Jews, the people that Jesus came to, his own people, had everything going for them. They they possessed God's word. They knew all the stories. They prided themselves on keeping God's law. But when God himself finally showed up on the scene, what did they do? They accused him of being in cahoots with the devil. Oh, but I would never do that. Pharisees. No. No. You're looking in the mirror. That's what you're doing. They refused to receive him because they didn't want to give him humble obedience and trust. Because the moment you do that, you have to get off the throne of your life. You have to stop calling the shots. You have to cease pretending, if you want to have any integrity, that you're God or other people are God or other things are God. We don't want to do that so we don't believe Jesus. And that's why I warn you, friend, be careful lest you fall into the same trap. We we are going to encounter people in this gospel who reject Jesus over and over and over again. And I want to protect you from thinking, that can't be me. I come to church. I bring my Bible to church. People respect me as an upstanding Christian man or woman. But, but I ask you, friend, do you really believe Jesus? Or are you just pretending, presuming, that because you like him or you feel close to him or you know a lot of things about him or you've done some commendable better than other people, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, things for him, <laughs> that it's well with your soul. Don't do that. Receiving Jesus isn't about thinking he's cool or acknowledging he has some good things to say, nor is it about asking him into your heart like he's some sort of lonely neighborhood kid looking for a place to stay. He's your creator. He's your king. He's your master. You're going to be judged by Jesus on the day you die. And what are you going to say then? How are you going to respond to Jesus then? Will you point to your good works? They're nothing compared to the perfection of his holiness. Will you point to all the things you haven't done? Well, well enough. But what about all the things you have done? What are we going to do about that? 
You think the judge of all the earth will just ignore that? Or that you'll be able to hide that? Every word, every deed, every thought in your life that has never been in perfect conformity to his holy will will be exposed and revealed. There's not a curve because God and God alone is the standard. So what are you going to do about that? I implore you, here's what you do. You don't ignore Jesus. (laughs) You don't assume you're good with Jesus. You do not pretend or imagine or minimize the fact that you need to run to Jesus. Because receiving him, look at verse 12, means what? Believing in his name. We're going to see that word over and over again. And so many times when churches and Christians and people have been around it all here, believing, all they think is, yeah, um, I'm generally for that. (laughs) I'm cool with that. I, I like that. He's got good things to say. I mean, the world's filled with spiritual gurus. That's cool. No. No, believing in his name means what? It means leaning wholly on him as your only hope from salvation and sin and death, okay? Believing on Jesus means leaning only on him for your favor with God. He's your only hope for life in this world, the world to come. Believing in the name of Jesus means what? Focusing your highest thoughts on him. Investing your deepest affections in him. Surrendering all that you are and all that you have, your entire will to making much of him all the time. So be honest, friend. So we wade into this gospel. Who or what besides Jesus are you trusting or tempted to trust to give you life? If you could only have fill in the blank, then everything would be right. How are you going to fill in that blank? If you could only have fill in the blank, then everything would be good. I'd be okay. Pay attention to how you fill in that blank. Because Jesus was rejected by many people who should have known better. So take heed, friend, lest you unknowingly do the same. The word was rejected by men. Finally, the word grants the gift of adoption to all who believe in him. Look at verse 12. When you choose to believe in Jesus, friend, something utterly remarkable happens. Remarkable. But to all who did receive him, and now we know that doesn't just mean Mental acknowledgement, cool with you. That's, that's that wholehearted reliance, personal trust. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. <sighs> there are some people who speak and think, write and blog, as if to be a living human being is to be a child of God. We're all dependent on him. 
and we owe our continued existence to him. Colossians 1.17, in him all things hold together. Isn't every one of us bearing his image? Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Yes. Yes to both. (laughs) We're all dependent on him and owe our continued existence to him. But friend, there is a tremendous chasm between being dependent on God and owing your very existence to God and being known as a child of God. Calling him your father. Why? Because as sinners, we're alienated from God. We're separated. Sin separates us from God. The Almighty One is our creator, our king, our judge, but he is not our father. And we dare not consider ourselves his children. You know, in the book of Hosea, the Lord compares, I like illustrations, this is a helpful one, his relationship with Israel to the relationship between a prophet named Hosea and his adulterous, unfaithful wife, Gomer. And it's a picture of our collective spiritual adultery, forsaking the Lord to run after other gods. And in Hosea 1.8, Gomer conceives and bears a son, only, surprise, surprise, it's not actually Hosea's son, too. And so in verse 9, the Lord says this. Listen. Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet, promise. God acts, God moves, God sends, God takes initiative. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. That's the gospel, friends. We're, we're not children of God by right, by nature. What are we by nature? We're children of wrath. And yet the moment that we choose to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus, that is precisely what we become, children of the living God. Members of his own family, co-heirs with Christ Jesus, our older brother. Which means, Christian, you're not just called, sanctified, justified, and glorified. You know what you are? You're adopted. That is incredible. (laughs) To be welcomed, loved, and accepted by God would be wonder enough, right? And and cause for eternal praise. But to become his very own child is unspeakable grace, friends. Unspeakable. It speaks of an intimacy of relationship, privileged status, unlimited provision. Supreme protection. You become an an insider, not an outsider. Think of it this way. Adoption is the great relational end that all the other gifts and blessings of the gospel make possible. It's what they're feeding into. Why? Because what has God's mission been for the whole Bible from the very beginning? Restoring relationship with his people. But what we discover in Christ is it's not just a, okay, you went from not welcome to like, yeah, sit on the fifth row, thanks. No, it went from you are not welcome because of your sin, you can't come in, to you are my child. 
You're my son, my daughter. The king of the universe becomes your father. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. And to those of you who've heard that many years because you've been following Christ for many years, think about this. The world holds out an unlimited menu of options for creating your own identity, Christian. It's bigger than the Cheesecake Factory menu. It's massive. Who am I? What's your identity? Well, I'm a rule keeper. I'm a rule breaker. I'm a competent manager, a skilled artist, a savvy businesswoman, a respected professional. I'm a good student. I'm an exemplary child, unlike my brother. Who am I? I'm the person who needs help always. I'm the person who gives help. I'm straight, I'm lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, questioning. I'm rich, I'm poor, I'm middle class, I'm powerful, I'm oppressed, I'm in the minority, I'm in the majority, I'm sick, I'm healthy, I'm a success, I'm a failure. It's a big menu. Who are you? But friend, when you choose to follow Jesus... The answer to the who am I question is no longer this yawning black hole begging you to spend and be spent in a futile pursuit of the real you. Jesus fills in that blank. He writes into that blank an entirely new identity that no sin or suffering or sorrow can ever take away from you. And you know what that is? Child of the living God. Child of the living God. The life you experience through Jesus isn't a state of generic spiritual blessedness. It is a life filled with all the particular blessings of having God as your father. Affection, protection, provision, belonging, access, guidance, counsel, correction. More correction because he loves us. And the list goes on. And unlike so many of our earthly fathers, what's our heavenly father like? He's perfect in all his ways. And in verse 13, John takes great pains to teach us that we can't create this identity for ourselves. Children of God are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's a spiritual transformation so decisive, so massive that only the Lord can accomplish and provide that. And it's so life-altering that John actually refers to it as what? Being born again, which will come back to all over the place in chapter 3. But for now, let's make one thing crystal clear as we conclude. You can't make any of this happen. Sorry. You can't save yourself. The will of the flesh, the will of man, it's wholly inept. Or as Jesus says later in John 6, 63, the flesh is of what? No help at all. So what do we do? We, we abandon all confidence in ourselves and we cling wholly to Jesus. That's what we do. Because Jesus alone gives you the right to become a child of God. Jesus alone can bring you into the family relationship that he himself has enjoyed with the Father 
for all eternity. So you don't become a child of God by growing up in a Christian family or going to church every Sunday or bringing your Bible to church on Sunday or keeping all the rules or breaking all the rules. You become a child of God by trusting Jesus. His work is your only hope for that relationship. And by the way, his work is your only hope for your spouse or your kids or your parents or every other friend that you want to know the joy of being a child of God. And that's good news because Jesus, the word, loves to give the gift of adoption to those who trust him. This word authenticated by God's witness confronts every man and woman with a choice. Will you join the multitude that reject Jesus? Or will you believe in him and become a child of God? That that is the choice that the gospel of John lays before us over and over and over and over again. Because every day, in every situation, no matter what's going on, the most important question you'll answer is what? Who is Jesus? And if you get the answer right and you trust him accordingly, then you will find at one and the same time, friend, that your heavenly father has also given you an answer to the question, who are you? Let's pray. Jesus, we are amazed by you. We thank you that you are the word who authenticated yourself through a faithful witness. We're sobered by the fact that you are the word who was rejected by men. And we are so grateful for the fact that you're the word who grants the gift of adoption to those who choose to trust in you. And Lord Jesus, we pray today and for the next 18 months, that you would increase our knowledge of you, Jesus, that our faith in you would be strengthened, and that the life we find in you would abound. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are full of grace and truth. We love you in your name.